0: This episode is brought to you by SEEK. The great job boom is upon us and there's never been a better time to take the next step in your path, yay.
1: It's very rare that something is a one-way door, that if you make a choice, you couldn't go back. Sometimes when we think about our careers, we underplay the fact that personal circumstances and personal decisions will be and should be the main drivers of the choices that we make and sometimes career decisions fit around those rather than the other way around. Welcome to the Seize the Yay podcast.
0: Our final guest for the Finders Seekers mini series is none other than Seek's very own Managing Director for Australia and New Zealand, Kendra Banks. And we are so lucky to benefit not only from her insider tips on taking advantage of the great job boom, but also her personal wisdom on pivoting gleaned through an incredibly diverse and exciting career. With a BA from Yale in Economics and Maths, followed by a Masters in Europolitics, Kendra, like many of us, has ended up in places she never expected, spanning industry roles and even continents across the US, UK, Denmark and Australia. She is the perfect example of how rewarding the entrepreneurial path yay, can be working with huge companies from McKinsey to Oxfam and Tesco to then moving down under for Coles before her current role with Seek. Like all our guests for Finders Seekers, I feel very lucky to give the neighbourhood access to such incredible tips on taking advantage of the great job boom and hope it sparked something for you along the way. We'd love to follow along if any of you do end up taking the leap this year. So please keep those messages coming. Kendra, welcome to Seize the Yay. Hi, Sarah. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you guys so much for bringing this mini series to life. I just said off air that It has just been such a beautiful way to really highlight the entrepreneurial pathway, the incredible opportunity everyone has right now to make a jump towards their yay. And we've been getting some really lovely messages from the neighborhood about just clicking. Sometimes I feel like you just need one or two you know, podcasts or sentences or conversations to drop into your ears and it can change everything.
1: Oh, that's so wonderful to hear. It's such an exciting time in Australia right now with so many jobs available, so much happening in the economy and actually just wonderful opportunities to maybe try something different or have a go. So, I'm really glad that the listeners are picking up on that.
0: And it's even more of an honor to have you in particular joining the show for our final episode, not only because, of course, you are the Managing Director of Australia and New Zealand for SEEK, but also yourself have had an incredibly diverse career that does jump from one thing to another across some really, really cool, but very different companies and organizations and countries even, which is, I think, one of the most exciting things about the show for me is going through people's what I call pathier and showing that you know, it's lots of little dots that connect. Very few people wake up one day and know that they're going to be the MD of Seek eventually. You know, you kind of you never know where the next jump will take you. So can we go back to the very beginning and talk about sort of what younger Kendra first, you know, what did you first seek to become? Did you have a big idea of what your career would look like? What was your first hopes and dreams.
1: Sure. Thanks. Look, no, I really did not have a super clear idea when I was young. I grew up in the States. I came from a family that was very academically focused. So, doing well in school was very important. And I did well in school and I felt like I was very lucky to have a lot of opportunities that I could pursue. So, I guess I grew up with that feeling that there were lots of things I could do, but I didn't have a really clear idea of what that would be. I mean there's moments that I can remember from my childhood. One was of course wanting to be a ballerina. That was clearly <laughs> never going to happen. One was wanting to be a bank teller because they always gave lollipops to the kids when you went through the drive-through at the bank. <laughs> <laughs> Such a good reason to want that career. I want to give out lollipops. Exactly. You're (laughs) making children happy. You know, little things like that. But I, I think I didn't really have a clear idea until I was in university and studying. And I studied economics. I studied political science. I studied international relations. And I thought that would be my career, sort of international development and making a difference in the world and i'm sure we'll come on to to chat about that's not really how how it turned out.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well, i actually love going back to look at sort of what people studied uh, if they did study because i think you make a lot of assumptions if you only saw that. And i can imagine you at that time in your life also made a lot of assumptions about what that would lead to and like a ba from yale in economics and maths to then do a masters in euro politics like they're all quite broad umbrellas, but what the equation leads to in terms of a job, it's it's quite difficult to think where that would lead to, but
1: I wouldn't automatically think in Australia at sick, So No, absolutely not. And, <laughs> and when I did finish university, I certainly didn't think that at all. I thought I was going uh, to move to Washington DC and work in policy. I wasn't like, I didn't think I'd run for office or anything like that, but be one of those staffers that you know, runs around behind politicians and, and, and helps them figure out the best things to do. But now that the life took me on a, a really different journey different (laughs) path
0: I love it. You're on it already. (laughs) (laughs) On brand. Yeah. (laughs) So your first sort of step into the professional world was at McKinsey. Is that right? A big Mm -hmm. management consulting firm that I've had actually quite a few friends who have been through McKinsey. And that is similar to what I feel like my time uh, in law was a very big not delayer, but kind of buying time to learn a lot of very broad skills to then have more time to figure out what you want to do after that. Like such an amazing launch pad. I don't know any management consultants who can actually explain what they did when they were management consultants, but <laughs> can you tell us about your time at McKinsey? Because a lot of people have launched incredible and very diverse careers off the back of, of a McKinsey, you know, beginning.
1: Yeah, that's I think you you're absolutely right in how you explained it. I ended up in Europe for a few years after I finished university in the US. And I lived in Copenhagen for a while. And the reason for that was because I had a Danish boyfriend. There was nothing more (laughs) to it than that. And so, I was trying to look for a job in Denmark, not speaking any Danish whatsoever. And you know, fortunately, English is the language of business in Denmark. And didn't really ever think consulting was a path that I would take. But I was at a career fair and I met a couple of the McKinsey team who were there. And they were super nice and they helped me figure out how I could get a job there, which I did. And I was there for a couple of years, but really had this desire to get back to you know, what I simplistically thought was making a difference, which was to go and work in not-for-profit organizations. And because I was in Europe, I couldn't work for the government. You know, you can work for your own government, but you can't really work for somebody else's government, if you're not a citizen. So I was really interested in working for -for not-for-profits. And I ended up in London, did some not-for-profit work via McKinsey. And then that was the kind of first big pivot I made, which was out of McKinsey and into a big international not-for-profit.
0: Which is Oxfam, which Mm -hmm. is... Incredible, because that, in itself, I mean, very early, this is steps before the one we're even you know talking about now, mm. but a massive pivot across industries, across countries, neither of those countries being your native country. And I think that's like the the essence of this miniseries is the idea that you can make huge leaps within your career and multiple leaps within your career. And they're going to be incredibly scary, totally overwhelming, often full of uncertainty, but can be, The best leaps that you can make. So, what was that first pivot like?
1: How did you combat the
0: sort of self doubt, fear of the unknown?
1: You know? (laughs) Yeah, it was a huge pivot. I mean, London is a city. I lived in London. London is a city where I think a lot of people can feel comfortable because it's so international. There is not a single, you know, food that you can't get there or person from a certain culture or background or experience who doesn't live in London. You know, you can always find a community in London. So, that was relatively straightforward as a pivot. Working in a not-for-profit was a really big change from being in a place like McKinsey and working with big corporates. I was really passionate about what Oxfam does. I still am hugely passionate about what Oxfam does. I was there for about 18 months. But through that 18 months, I actually, I just had this gradual realization that it wasn't really for me. And that's not because I wasn't passionate about the work that Oxfam was doing. I could just see that the way I liked to solve problems, the kind of day-to-day activities that really I enjoyed were not the ones that I was doing there. Mm. And as a result, I just kind of had this gnawing sense that it wasn't right and that I wasn't actually making the difference that when I first joined, I thought I would. So, you know, I just have enormous, enormous respect for what Oxfam does. So, this is completely about how I fit into that organization as opposed to how wonderful uh, they are. So after 18 months, I did end up leaving and I spent several months, I think probably nine months trying to decide what I was going to do next because that had been my thing, right? You know, in university and then through McKinsey, I was like, oh, this is going to be it. This is the, the change that I'm going to make. This is what I want to do with my life. And I, it wasn't, it, it turned out not to be the case. So I really had to reflect on what I did next and it took me some time to do that.
0: I think that's incredibly brave because a lot of people do feel, and I think a lot of listeners who are finding this mini-series so valuable are sitting in that place of I don't worry so much about people who are desperately unhappy in their job because I feel like you reach this critical point where it's every day you just hate what you're doing and inevitably you'll make a change. You know, you'll, you'll realise the discomfort is too great. But when you do love the organisation and you can see a lot of positives, it can be really hard to actually be pushed enough because there's not enough discomfort to sort of realize maybe there's better, just because it's not, you know, like I think, I think sometimes we settle for good and then we we'd get too scared of of reaching for something else until we have something to jump to. But the fact that you left before you had the next thing to jump to is extraordinarily brave. And I think, you know, there are some really interesting statistics around Aussies at the moment, 61% of Australians don't want to change jobs in the next 12 months, regardless of whether they're happy or unhappy where Mm. they are. What do you think helped you step out of that role, even loving Oxfam? Yes. Not having anything to go to with that sort of worry about financial security or external expectations of you. How
1: did you do it? Yeah, it's a great question. And, you know, I think that the key point you make there is financially I had some savings from my previous role. And so I did have a financial cushion, which was a real luxury. And, Mm. you know, not everyone has that. And, you know, at the time I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. It was it was just me. I could live (laughs) in a you know I could sleep (laughs) on somebody's floor if I needed to. I didn't have a house or a mortgage or anything, right? I didn't have that commitment. So, you know, I, I look back on that. It wasn't as brave as it would be now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> When I have all those things, right? <laughs> so, but I think you're right. There's sometimes kind of a gnawing feeling in your gut that something's not quite right for you, but you kind of look at the surface and say, "Well, well everything else is great. So, mm-hmm. why, you know, why would I feel this way?" You doubt yourself. So, the question about when you've got this gnawing feeling and how do you kind of get the courage or the the bravery to do it anyway? I think you know one thing I've realized through a lot of different pivots is it's very rare that something is a one-way door that if you make a choice, you couldn't go back. So if I had made the wrong choice, I could have gone back and actually what ended up because I was taking some time to find a new role. I actually did some volunteering for a different international not-for-profit organization during that time. And it was almost like my backstop because I knew, you know, maybe I couldn't have gotten a paid job straight away, but I knew if I engaged there that one day I could probably go and, and work for them. So very few things are actually one-way doors. If it had taken me too long to to find the right thing, which, you know, eventually I did find something that really really suited me, I could have changed. I could have gone back.
0: I love that. I I think that's so important to remind everyone that, you know, m- most things aren't permanent, it's okay to sort of dabble and step a toe into something else and just see how it goes because we catastrophize, I think, what could go wrong, which is an enormous over-exaggeration, but we don't over-exaggerate how well it
1: could go. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) You're you're totally right. We can be so worried that if you get something wrong or you don't have all the answers that it's just going to be terrible or, you know, we just sometimes just don't have the energy to even think about trying. And I think particularly now after covid you know, what we hear at SEEK from a lot of job hunters is they're just exhausted. It does take a mental load to Mm. move from one thing to another. And that's part of the reason I actually left and started looking for a job after I left because I was so consumed with my day-to-day job. I didn't feel I had the mental energy to really decide what I wanted to do next. So, I just needed that step back, that step away. And you know, some more clear time Mm. in my head in the day to actually do a proper um, thoughtful job search.
0: Yeah, it is really hard to do both at the same time. And I love that you had a financial cushion because I think people forget there is a way to actually save really hard so that you can buy yourself some time for the jump to create some space for you to actually think about that stuff. And one way that I kind of help make decisions with things like this is, you know, it it might be really exhausting to do your job and look for a new job at the same time, but maybe part of the reason why you're exhausted is because you're doing something every day that you don't enjoy. Like maybe that's that's the tiring part. It's not the looking for the new job. It's maybe it's constantly feeling that gnawing feeling that this isn't right and pushing through it anyway. Yeah, that's right. And I think the other thing that's quite difficult to get your head around in this decision-making process with so many different opportunities is that I don't know if everyone does it, but I think it's quite common that we look at the macro, like you look at the title and you look at the money and you look at the, you know, is it fancy, is there prestige, and and you don't look at the micro of like the macro is Oxfam is amazing, the job is great, the opportunities are wonderful, I love the values, blah, 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 but the micro of your job description based on your specific talents and preferences you know, you could easily always make your decision at the macro and then wonder why you're unhappy in the micro. And I think it's mm. important
1: to sort of think about both. I think that's that's such a good point. Sometimes when I'm trying to help somebody think this through in terms of their career and how they're feeling about where they go next, I say think about it in four categories. There's the company you're with or the organization you're with. There's your role and what you do every day. There's your manager, because who you work with or for can have a huge difference on your on your happiness and your role. And then there's your personal circumstance. So if all four of those kind of work together and everything's going well at the same time, you'll be flying. You're Mm. just in a super happy place. You can maybe have one of those going wrong. Like maybe you're in a role you don't really like, but your manager is great and you love the company. You'll be okay. If more than one of those is going wrong, it's probably time to go or time to think of something different. Because if it's not working for you personally and you're not happy in the day-to-day role, then you're just going to get over the the day-to-day angst of it, even if you love the company or even if you love your boss or even if you love the people you work with.
0: Oh my gosh. I've never thought of it as kind of like a quadrant like that. Like I think a lot of people make a decision based on just one. Mm. Like they don't sort of divide it into what things are met and what aren't. And that's so useful. I feel like you should draw that out and like (laughs) hand it out as a worksheet. So once you did sort of have a little bit of time to buy some space for yourself, to think about where you wanted to go, I think this is quite common in people who reach a pinnacle that they had thought was going to be there sort of end you know this is my life forever decision and then get there and it's not what they thought it would be it's really hard because you've never thought about anything else like athletes who sort of win the thing that they've always wanted to do after that they're like oh
1: god what do I do with life now yes that's right (laughs) I mean I I, I would never give myself an analogy to an athlete a really successful (laughs) athlete at all not even close but what do you do next and how do you how do you go from there I really didn't know to be honest I had a lot my approach to Solving any problem like that is to just talk to a lot of people and not in a networky kind of way. I think that word networking is very scary for a lot of people. It's very mm. intimidating. I was more of the just telling friends what I was... <laughs> Thinking about the kind of questions I was asking, things that I was maybe interested or maybe not, and just having lots of conversations and every conversation maybe just gave me that one little nugget or that one little piece of information to move forward. And what I realized, I mean, I was not very experienced by this stage. I maybe had five years of work experience. And what I soon realized through a lot of those conversations is I did not have a lot of the specific skills that I would need to get a lot of the jobs that I thought I wanted. Mm. So, for one example, I was really interested in social enterprises. So, businesses that are profit-making, but also have a social goal. So, like fair trade food is a a really good example of that. I went and interviewed, or not interviewed so much as had a coffee with a woman who ran one of those businesses in the UK at the time and talked to her about, you know, my background and why I was really interested in this. And she was like, I'm sorry to be blunt, but why would I hire you? (laughs) and she said it exactly that bluntly and she said i have very limited money to invest in staff i need to have only the specific skills that i need to make my business successful so even though you want to be here i need somebody who has experience packaging coffee and shipping it around the world who knows how to negotiate with the big supermarkets where i sell my products who has experience in food quality and packaging and all these important things that you need to make a food brand successful and, you know, it's so obvious in retrospect. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> <Of> <laughs> Wait, course, I need I to meet criteria? That. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I have none of that. <laughs> but that was hugely, hugely helpful because it just took me a while to realize that I just needed to take a step back and maybe go back to what I actually knew how to do, which was a bit from my consulting days. I knew how to do strategy work. And I went and started looking at strategy departments. And at the time, it felt a bit like a step back. But I knew that it would be a step back that would help me gain new experience and take a step forward. And that's how I ended up in retail and e-commerce. And that's not an area where I ever thought I would work, but it ended up being a brilliant place to start a career because obviously this is the mid 2000s. E-commerce was very early days then. It's hard to even remember. There was a time before Amazon, but obviously grew heaps in the last last couple of decades and was Mm -hmm. a great industry to build a career in.
0: Lovely neighbourhood, you all know how excited I get about life unravelling in chapters and how uncertainty is the greatest platform for opportunity. After a few tough years, the great job boom is upon us, and there has never been a better time to start the next step in your path. Yea, we talk at length on this show about the obstacles to change, and the statistics are real. 45%, nearly half, of Aussies are worried their skills and resume won't stack up against other Aussies. 59% are worried that if they change jobs, it might not be the right role or company for them. But if you let your mind worry that there's a risk it won't work out, logic insists that you must also accept that it could also work out better than you had ever dreamed. Plus, the numbers are on your side. In March, job ads on Seek were up 32% compared to the same time last year, and 51% compared to pre-pandemic levels. But job applications per job ad are down 42% compared to pre-pandemic levels, so there are more jobs but less competition than ever before. So if you're looking to change Parthiers, head on over to SEEK and take advantage of the great job boom. I love that you touched on the kind of qualification side of applying for jobs because in all the dot points kind of along the way in your career from McKinsey to Oxfam, then Tesco, and then moving to Australia for Coles. This is still all before Seat, guys. So there are many dot points in this path, yay. They're they're all quite big jumps between like cultures and countries, but also roles and departments and industries. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the hard things for women in particular not only women, but I think women in particular, there's that big study I think by Hewlett-Packard about applying for jobs when you have a certain percentage of the criteria. Men do it at 60% and women wait until 110%, 120%. Yeah. It's a very difficult area to navigate because you don't want to wait until you're, you've got 120% of the criteria mm-hmm. and the job is gone. You also don't want to apply at you know, 30% and then either you're, you're just not going to get the job or you get it and you're flailing and it, it's too much of a challenge But I think we probably err on the side of waiting too long and not believing that we can upskill along the way. Absolutely.
1: absolutely. And I think the key there is, you know, the the specific example I talked about before was a role or a company that required really specific skills. And there's some roles, there is a specificity of a skill set that you either have it and you've learned it or you haven't. And if you haven't, you just can't do it. Surgery. but. Correct. (laughs) Top of the list, right? Yeah. (laughs) Um, But then there's a lot of others that you can move into with transferable skills. And this is something we're seeing a lot actually right now in Australia in the great job boom is because there are so many roles available and businesses are willing to make more of a bet on people who don't necessarily have every dot point in the job ad ticked. They are willing to look at people with transferable skills. But sometimes from the outside, it's hard to know which roles kind of qualify for that and which don't. Mm. So at Seek, we spend a lot of time with our advertisers, the businesses that are hiring for people, trying to get them to write job ads that are really specific about what is an absolute mandatory and what, hey, it's nice. We'd like it if you had that, but you could have brought that skill from another industry or another role type to try to open up the pool of people who could successfully interview for that role. And then on the job seeker side, it's pretty tricky because how do you explain why you're going to be good at that job? How do you pitch yourself when you don't actually have those specific skills or that you don't actually know how your old skills and your current role or your current experience would translate? It's kind of a tricky thing to figure out. It's all well and good to say, hey. There's a lot of jobs that are open where there's transferable skills that you could move from A to B. Um, you don't have to tick them all off, but which ones, how you explain why you'll be okay in the <laughs> role, even if you haven't ticked them off, it can be tricky. And I think also
0: not only explaining it, but also believing in yourself that you could actually live up to that. Because I have a lot of incredibly clever, talented friends who just happen to have had their first careers in areas that are quite niche. Like, law i mean it's very broad broadly transferable skills but it's easy for for the person to feel pigeonholed because you've only trained for one particular way of thinking so you don't imagine that you could do anything else so you know, I listen to them talking about, I would love to do something else, but I never could because I can only do this. And it's sort of mm. like, I, I want them to open their minds to be able to have the confidence to even want to write down that they could do something else. Do you know what I mean?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And law is a great example of a, an industry or a training where you learn... Just general problem-solving skills or client service skills or thinking and structuring communication skills, all of those are developed at a really high level in legal careers, and those are really applicable in lots of different contexts. Like yourself, obviously, you've, you've taken a big <laughs> pivot. I was actually just talking to somebody last night who's the chief HR director at a big global company who came from law and moved from yeah. law into human resources. So, there's lots and lots of ways that skills can be transferred. But you need to, you know, in my experience or when when people ask how to to handle this, what I often suggest is that they just go out and talk to a lot of people in the industry yeah. and with a really open brief, not in a, hey, I'm trying to network and can you please figure out how I can get a job at your company kind of way, <laughs> but yeah. in a like, hey, when you look at my CV and my experience in the context of your business or the role that you're in, what looks good and what's a problem. And understanding how you will be perceived in market for that particular role can help you also be really confident in what you do bring.
0: Yeah, that's great advice to just kind of get some people to to do a CV audit and to kind mm. of say like, especially people who know you, because they can often say you are so good at X, Y, Z, and it's, it's not mentioned here and you're not even highlighting that at all. Like it's a, a really good way to start to gauge what you're missing or how you could better pitch yourself. But I think also there's the flip side of that. You also touched on sort of how, you know, it felt a bit like a step, backwards to go into roles that you'd already been doing at the time at this kind of Mm -hmm. stage along the way. And I think that's two sides of a coin. There's the self-doubt in not wanting to, or or imposter syndrome of like, I don't want to put myself forward for this because I'm not good enough or I don't have the skills. Then there's also ego on the other side, which is, oh, but I don't want to step backwards either, even though sometimes the backward step or a sideways step is Mm -hmm. also the way that you go forward. So- can you talk us through what came next with Tesco and then Cole's InterSeek, mm-hmm. drawing on that kind of self-doubt ego
1: dichotomy? <laughs> sure. Coin? Absolutely. absolutely. I think, yeah, absolutely. I think when I joined Tesco and I joined in a strategy role, I was pretty clear as I joined, that I didn't want to be in strategy forever, that my aspiration, one of the reasons I was interested in joining such a big company like Tesco, which is it for listeners who don't know, is a huge retailer in the UK, is that I felt that over time, not right away, because obviously I was joining, committing to a certain role in this team, but over time I would be able to move into other functions. And I asked whether that was something that happened at Tesco. And the answers I got were yes, it does. And we have lots of examples of people who've moved into different functions and have developed really multifunctional careers. And that really appealed to me. And, you know, they they were absolutely true to their word in the sense that I was in the the strategy team for about 18 months. I moved into marketing which is not an area I had much experience in, but I learned really quickly and they're very supportive in helping me to do that. I moved into pricing. I did various other roles across the the organization. Sometimes people talk about big companies and big corporates with a lot of downsides. From a career development perspective, my view is there's so much upside being in a big company because mm-hmm. they're used to moving people around and developing people in different functions. There's more people around to support you. Yeah. So a small company, if you are not great at marketing, they can't afford to have you in the marketing role because yeah. they need somebody who's just going to crack it. There's only maybe two or three of you. you know. They can't be carrying someone who's learning along the <laughs> way. In a big business, there's just more support. And so they can be more open to taking risks to help somebody develop their career. So, yes, I did that along the way. I actually met my husband who's Australian and we lived in London together for a while. And then after uh, first two kids, we ended up moving to Australia about 10 years ago. So, that was the transfer from Tesco to Coles, which is another big retailer. And I was at Kohl's for a good few years and then decided I really wanted to get back to a digital business because I'd worked in e-commerce at Tesco and really wanted to get back to digital. I had the wonderful opportunity to join seek and have loved it ever since.
0: Oh my gosh, what a story. Amazing. (laughs) And it's touched on so many different countries as well, which is Mm. so cool. And it seems as though you're not averse to change, like you don't see it as a bad thing. I think we have this really outdated view that, you know, you've got to pick one career and if you're changing around all the time, like it's, it must mean something went wrong. But I love that you've just had moments in each job where you're sort of like, no, I'm ready for the next thing. And then have embraced that as like a growth opportunity rather than that something went wrong.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Or that it's driven by personal yeah. uh, circumstances. I was having a great time at Tesco. I had no reason to leave except we were ready to experience life in Australia because of family reasons. So that was that's the reason we, we left. And I think sometimes when we think about our careers, we underplay the fact that personal circumstances and personal decisions will be and should be the main drivers of the choices. Mm that we make and sometimes career decisions fit around those rather yeah. than the other way around.
0: Yeah, I love that, that you can make your career work first, sort of where you want to be in the world, like decide mm. that and then figure out how you'll you'll make it work mm. in, in a career way. And particularly during the great job boom, there are so many more jobs available, everybody. So, if you did <laughs> want to move into state or make a big, you know, sea change, you can do that now and then there's so much more opportunity to do that. I think another factor that does kind of get in the way of people, even knowing that there's this great job boom and Mm -hmm. wanting to take, you know, advantage of this cultural phenomenon, I think people get really scared of rejection. They get Mm. really scared of failure. It does hurt. Like rejection is never like, woo, that's amazing in the moment anyway. Have you had any things that you've really, really wanted or you've really thought were going to happen along the way that just haven't happened and that you've had to kind of get past rejection. And I always think that rejection is redirection. Really, it's just saving you from something that wasn't meant for you and it'll push you towards the thing that you're meant to be doing. But in the moment, it still hurts. So, have you had to deal with
1: that along the way? Yeah, absolutely. And there's certainly been, you know, I've done a lot of different jobs and along the way, you know, you would have thought, oh, well, maybe I should do this one next or I'd be really interested in that one next. And it hasn't worked out for whatever reason or there's just been a delay and that it you know, it just goes on forever and you figure, oh, well, I can't really make that work either. It's easy for me to to say now with with the benefit of hindsight, but rejection is really rarely personal. It feels personal, but it's mm-hmm. almost always about in the career sense, at least not maybe in the wider life, but in a career sense, if you don't get a job, it is almost certainly because there was a certain need that they had that you just don't. And that's just a fact. It's not a kind of a judgment on your character or a judgment on who you are as a person. It's just yeah. kind of a fact. You know, if I go back to that business I was talking about before who said, just why would I hire you? <laughs> they needed something really specific and I just didn't have it. Now, that's just, it is what it is. Yeah, <laughs> You just kind of have to move on. And I love that re- rejection is, is redirection. It's also just more information. So yes. is it, okay, so now I know that. So this type of business is not going to be able to hire me. Or this type of organization just doesn't have these kinds of roles. Or this type of you know, situation, they really need somebody with this kind of mm. way of approaching problems. So, it's just getting facts on the table that help you redirect completely or just narrow down your options and, and be more successful in the ones you go for next.
0: Yeah, totally. I think that having data is so important and people often, even if they're not rejected, but if they reject a situation, like they get into a job and they don't really like it or it doesn't turn out the way you thought, you know, that often does feel a bit like a failure or a step backwards or a waste of time. But I'm like, it gave you data. Figuring out what you don't want is as valuable as figuring out what you do want because it's pushing, you know, you've got more information, more puzzle pieces to kind of figure out what the whole picture is going to look like. Like nothing's a
1: waste if it helped you figure out something. Absolutely. And you can't always diagnose things in the moment. You know, if something doesn't feel right, sometimes it takes a bit of distance to figure out why. And so maybe you do try something else that doesn't quite work as well, but then you see the pattern, you go, okay, there's two of those in a row. You know what? (laughs) This is the reason. Now I get it. You know, now I've figured it out. And that's, as you say just gives you so much more confidence moving to the next opportunity and moving to whatever your next goal might be.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So with your seek hat on, mm. now speaking to sort of anyone who is really wanting to to take advantage of the great job boom but is I don't know hesitant or scared or you know fearing rejection or whatever it is, is there any inside information from a seek perspective of things that have really stood out, things that are really working for applicants or you know, anything that that just is unique to this kind of time that could be sure, helpful?
1: Sure. So, this kind of time and, you know, depending on when you're listening to this podcast, it's early June 2022. <laughs> this time right now in Australia, we call it the great job in because there are just more jobs out there than there ever have been before and application rates are lower than they've been for a very long time. So, there's more jobs out there and the number of applications that each of those ads is getting is a lot lower than we're used to. So, because of that, businesses or organizations or hires of any type are much more likely to consider somebody who doesn't have, you know, of the 10 dot points on the, on the <laughs> job description, they're much more likely to consider somebody with fewer of those. So, it comes back to this question about transferable skills and how you're able to, if you want to make a change, if you want to make a change within your function, within your role type, now is a great time to do that as well. It's a great time to ask for a pay rise. It's a great time to ask for different conditions or different flexibility or different benefits that you think would make a difference. And it's also a great time to try to make a move into something very different because hires are more willing to consider those those transferable skills. I think the key is in your CV, how you pull those out in a way that's really clear. Mm -hmm. So somebody who's not used to looking, if you're a hiring manager and you're used to looking at people with experience always in whichever industry or role type it is, how do you kind of navigate the CV of somebody who doesn't have that specific experience? Well, you need to have the skills really clearly pulled out up at the top and a statement of, you know, why you're interested in moving into this kind of role, you know, what skills you have and why they, how you built them in other types of roles and why they'd be applicable here and just be really straightforward about why you think you'd you'd be great in the role.
0: It's been, gosh, so long since I've done a CV for a particular role, but are there any like bright line absolute shoulds and absolute should nots are there any like particular like one page only or cover letter versus cv like are there any you know
1: industry hacks (laughs) it's really really different by industry and role so i wouldn't dare try to generalize i think what we find is um Just read the instructions on the ad or the website or the application form. If somebody says they don't want a cover letter, don't send one. Yeah. (laughs) If somebody somebody says they do want a cover letter, be sure you send one. Otherwise, you know, on the the Seek Career Advice site, there's heaps of articles, tips, CV templates, whatever would be, would be helpful to help in a job search. Much more insight there than I could (laughs) I could possibly summarize here. But when we hear back from advertisers about what frustrates them, it's applicants who don't read the instructions.
0: Yes. Oh my gosh. I can imagine you saying, dear sirs, I have great attention to detail. Yeah. And they're like, no, we didn't want this letter yes. at all.
1: Exactly. exactly. <laughs> you know, it, it's pretty basic, but, but you'd be surprised.
0: Yeah. And I did forget to mention that Seek do have a lot of resources. Like there are templates and stuff to all our listeners. If you're, you know, looking to sort of get an idea of the, t- the format and the length and all that kind of thing, um, absolutely go on SEEK's website. I'll, I'll make sure to include a link in the show notes. It would be remiss of me not to also ask you a non-work-related question, particularly <laughs> because this is CCA and there is work, yay, but there's also personal life, yay, and play that are an incredibly important thing. I think even to make sure you do, you are able to keep the joy in your work because you're not burning out. So, how do you cultivate your identity outside of work? Is there anything you do to play that's
1: not productive and that's just for joy? (laughs) Sure. Absolutely. I mean, I have three kids. I work a full-time job and I have three kids. And so, for me, outside of work is all about family time and unapologetic family time. So I tend to leave, leave work pretty promptly at five or if I'm home, just, you know, shut the office door and turn off the lights and and five o'clock family time. You know, my my boys are 14 and 11 and seven. Three boys. Yeah, exactly. Uh, There's a lot (laughs) going on with them. Just, you know, nothing makes you forget what was worrying you at work than to go and listen to their joys and Mm. stories and the problems that they face during the day and helping them solve their own little problems and to hang out with them and just to do whatever they're interested in. So that tends to be what, where I find my yay outside, outside of work is, is with my kids.
0: Oh, amazing. I love that children just make you, we live with our heads in either in the past or in the future so much. Like we're very rarely kind of right here, but yeah. I feel like children haven't developed that ability yet. So they're just like, now, what I'm doing right now yeah. is where I am. And it's so <laughs> refreshing to be pulled into that.
1: It is, it is. You're absolutely right. And so, you know, whether it's just helping one of my older kids study for a test the next day or playing Uno with the youngest or, you know, going and- I don't know what were those things called they play with. <laughs> oh, the Beyblades, spinning some Beyblades, whatever. <laughs> These little toys, um, yeah. they come and they go. But there's a lot of fun to be had with them, and it's very grounding and does make you forget all the sort of petty things that that worried you through the day.
0: Absolutely. And final question: Do you have a favorite quote?
1: I am not one of those people who remembers the exact specifics of quotes, but there is one I often think about when it comes to careers. And I've heard two versions of this. One is about being so focused on climbing the ladder that you don't realize it's against the wrong wall. <gasps> I love that one. There's a mountain version about climbing a mountain only to realize when you get to the top that actually you're supposed to be on the other one. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it so commonly happens that you can get in your own zone and you're so worried about what's happening with your specific job situation that you're in or the business that you're trying to create or the specific colleagues that you have or whatever is going on in that situation and you're just so focused on that that you actually forget that there's there's a whole wide world out there. There's a Himalayas yeah. of mountains around <laughs> exactly. you. Exactly. <laughs> there's so many. And you can't climb them all, you know <laughs> we don't have <laughs> we don't have unlimited time on this earth to climb every ladder or mountain. But you want to make sure you're obviously spending your time climbing the one that's going to bring you the most joy. It is so apt
0: that that was the chosen quote of Kemi, who was our first episode in this mini-series. And it is also the quote that closes our mini-series. I think it's perfect. It's perfect for this mini-series. The idea that... How many times can I say mini-series in a sentence? (laughs) It's such a perfect reminder it's, it's so easy to get bogged down in that one ladder or that one mountain, but in the midst of a great job boom is the perfect time to go and find a new ladder or a new mountain Absolutely. <laughs> Armed with all the tools that you learned in this mini series. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Kendra, thank you so much for joining. I got so much out of this personally, and let alone the bonus of uh, the fact that our listeners will also have access to your wisdom and knowledge. Thank you so much for
1: joining. Oh, thank you, Sarah. It was great to be here.